Hello, everyone, and welcome to Sound of Play. Thank you. 
This is a uh, very exciting podcast today. Um, I'm, I'm joined by Darren Gargat and somebody else that we'll introduce in, in just a moment here. Uh, but I wanted to go back to one of our early sounds of play. We had the uh, pleasure of speaking to the enormously talented uh, Steve Burke, uh, probably most famous for the, uh, the fantastic cameo elements of Power Soundtrack uh, and uh, one of the, the good old Rareware boys. Um, <laughs> uh, and uh, today we are are joined by another of the rare stable, although I hesitate to even label him as the uh, as a rareware boy anymore because he's been for almost half of his career now. Uh, it's, we're almost at that that halfway point where his independent work has 
uh, kind of eclipsed the uh, time that he spent at Rare, and and certainly the breadth of his work um, has uh, has expanded far past the stuff that he's done in the Rareware stable. So uh, yeah, it's kind of a, a man who defies explanation in that way. <laughs> Um, but, uh, yeah, definitely the composer of, um, some of my favorite tunes, um, not just in video games, but just kind of broadly, a genuine talent in the industry, uh, Mr. Uh, Grant Kirkhope. Well, what, what an introduction. I can't believe it. It sounds like somebody else. <laughs> 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 I'm th- yeah, it always sounds a bit, when you say, say it like that, it sounds a lot better than it is. <laughs> <laughs> it's a pleasure to have you on the show. Um, thanks again for taking some time out to chat. It's, it's been, uh, kind of a, a constant presence in, in my life ever since I was a child, you know, listening to the old Banjo-Kazooie and, and GoldenEye tunes. And then, you know, even more recently, some of the, uh, the great stuff from, uh, ukulele and, and Mario and Rabbids, such a, um, kind of a breadth of, of work that has been done over the years. Oh, absolutely, man. Like from a personal point of view, like Banjo-Kazooie music onwards, they're just still stuck on my head to this very day. And, you know, part of the reason why I ended up getting a job as a QA tester for, you know, a, a, a relatively brief period was because of the tunes and obviously the game that was Banjo-Kazooie and GoldenEye. Like I, I was so taken aback by how cohesive both of those games were. They just pull you in and the music is exactly the reason why you stay there. It, immediately you can hear freeze easy peak in your head as soon as uh, freeze easy peak as soon as i say it you know what i mean like it's just utterly incredible tr- tracks that i i can't shake out of my head and um yeah I, yeah well and for other reasons i've heard grab by the ghoulies music more than enough um sat next to uh, one richard cousins uh so i've had, had grab by the ghoulies in one ear and then i had a sweary richard cousins in the other ear it was a very <laughs> interesting experience but um well, i'm such a it's such an honor to you know just be chatting to you grant i've um i've interviewed david wise chris siever chris marlowe I'm, I'm i'm basically doing the pokemon of rare people is that right, is that okay all the, yeah all the lads <laughs> good, 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 catch them all i'm gonna get you all yes you know it's funny that like you know when people say you're sort of part of the childhood like that is such a humbling thing because you know you don't think that when you're when you're doing that stuff when you're right when you're working you just try to make the best mm. thing you can right so mm-hmm. the fact that people still remember it it is like 24 years later or something ridiculous you know it's a bit crazy really and i never really thought that it would ever be like that so you know it's as amazing to me as it is to everybody else probably <laughs> you know it's i just uh i don't know I, I never get used to that i think i never ever kind of go oh yeah you know it's, i never get used to it it's something that always <laughs> makes me kind of go god did i really do that you know was it somebody else it's like another life almost you know um yeah, yeah i don't know it's such a strange thing yeah, well, I, and I mean, you've been getting um, that probably a lot more than uh, usual lately with uh, the recent kind of Smash Bros. announcement bringing uh, Banjo into that game. Of course, featuring a uh, a new remix of some of your previous work and uh, giving people a chance to kind of engage with those characters again, either for the either revisiting them from when they were younger or even probably a lot of players for the first time encountering these these characters. So. Uh, it's an exciting time. Yeah, that was that was amazing. That whole pro- that whole thing was just amazing. Like I didn't think for one minute mm. that, that Banjo would ever make it into Smash. And <laughs> you know, I, I keep getting pounded on my Twitter account. People going Banjo, 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 Banjo for Smash. And I really, <laughs> I, I really, I really thought that they would never make it because I kind of felt like mm-hmm. they would have made it by now. You know, they've been around for like twenty odd years. Yeah, you right. would, I would have thought they're never going to make it in there now. You know, with Davide Soliani, who's the guy, uh, the creative director at um, Milan uh, Ubisoft, who did the Mario Rabbids game with him. You know, mm-hmm. um, and he messaging me to say, Grant, Nintendo want to get hold of you. Is it all right if I pass on the content information? You know? Hmm. And I was a bit like, of course, you know, I've got ridiculous course, pass it on, you know? And it was, you know, it was a, there was a very sort of, um, 
you know, not very informative email for them sort of saying, we'd like your assistance on a three minute piece of already, already existing music. Are you interested? And that was literally it, you know. My mind thought instantly it must be Banjo, but then I thought it can't be that because they always use Japanese remix guys for the remixes in Smash, you know. Mm-hmm. They never use Western guys, let alone the original composer. So I thought it can't be that. I thought perhaps it's something from Mario Rabbids that's going to go into the game. So it took at least a month to sort out the NDA. And then when I finally found out it was Banjo and Smash, I nearly exploded. It was like, oh my God, it's really going to happen. You know, incredible. I was on holiday at the time. So I kind of skipped the three this year, but it was like, right. what a work, what a worst. Thing. Like for me personally, <laughs> what an E3 to miss. I come home and there's like Banjo's in Smash. I was like, oh man, I should have been, I should have been there, man, live watching it. But yeah, like I had my little nearly three-year-old daughter in front of the, in front of the telly and I put it on and I was like, Ivy, you've got to watch this. And she was like, Banjo Zooey. And she loves it, man. She <laughs> She loves the introduction where they're all playing on the, um, you know, the xylophone and the and the, oh, the banjo and the two. Yeah. And I, I, oh, my, oh my God, man. She absolutely loves Banjo-Kazooie. And the fact that, an, you know, a nearly three-year-old girl can appreciate what's going on on Banjo-Kazooie, both visually and audibly, it just speaks to the game, you know, as a as a piece of um, history, really. I know that that is, you know, it, it seems to, it seems to have worn well, Banjo, you know, over the years. Oh, yeah. Uh, mm-hmm. Which is a bit, you know, you don't expect that really. You think, you know, Games, the graphics start to date very quickly and people want to play, you know, things that look more real. I guess perhaps because mm-hmm. it was a cartoony graphic style, it can be, it can date and people don't get tired of it. Where if it's some kind of mm-hmm. you know, high-end shooter, you want it to look real as real can be, right? So maybe, you know, those games age quicker because the, the new crowdbear comes out and all that kind of yeah. stuff. But with I think with the cartoony games, perhaps it can, as long as the frame rate holds steady, you know, you can, it's still, you can still play it, you know, and, and still get fun out of it. Yeah, I I think Minecraft probably has a lot to do with that and it, uh, kind of tempering people's expectations from a young age. Like Minecraft has set uh, an example that graphics aren't all about a million trillion polygons, you know? You can yeah. just have these blocks and cubes walking around and it's fine. As long as the game's fun, then that's exactly what we're here for. Yeah, and I feel like a lot of the indie guys, they, I mean, they, get, they make games that look retro, but are still fantastic yeah, games. Yeah. So I think people... Yeah are used to playing things like that now. They don't mind it. Like, and I kind of agree with that. If, if the game plays great, who cares what it looks like? If it really exactly. plays well and you really get great fun out of it, d- does it matter that it's not completely real? You know, I think that's changed a lot, like you say. Yeah, well, we'll have a, a, a lot of time to chat about um, both your past and um, well, we'll see how much of future... <laughs> future work we're able to get into. <laughs> but we wanted to introduce that uh, that piece that we heard coming into the show today. This is a familiar piece uh, for people who have played the game and probably those who haven't. Um, this was Peach's Castle, which you composed for Mario and Rabbids Kingdom Battle. Um, you spoke about, uh, about the uh, Mario and Rabbids team already and about uh, some of the work that you've done with Nintendo. This is an interesting piece to me because this soundtrack... And uh, the the work that you've done previously on Castle of Illusion, or even uh, converting some of uh, David Weiss's compositions for uh, Donkey Kong Land on uh, on Game Boy, Donkey Kong Land Two rather, it's kind of a different skill set of not just cr- um, creating original music, but also kind of working within the context of a series that already has kind of an established sound or tone or specific pieces of music that you're trying to kind of weave into the original compositions as well. How is that different from like a compositional perspective than just going into a blank slate, creating the sound from scratch? Well, sometimes it's a bit quicker because you've got a melody already there, right? So, you you know, you you can start straight away without sort of working out a melody and, you know, and getting people to like it. And then, you know, that kind of thing, you, you, you know what the tune is, you can get right on it. I think with the Peaches Castle, it was for me, it was extra special because I got to use, you know, Koji Kondo's 
theme right. from Super Mario 64, the castle theme, which I always loved that theme. Well, when I was at Rare and we all got our N64 consoles, you know, we got them early and, we got, and we, I think Rare bought us all, I think it was, was it for free? I can't remember, but we, we all, everyone in the company got an N64 and the, uh, the hardware team at the, uh, at Rare converted them all to work on SCART because you know, it was SCART in those days and because mm-hmm. they were American consoles. So I mean, everybody got Mario 64. So that was a, it was a massive deal, that game to the whole company. Like, you know, we all got it. We all played it. We all thought it was fantastic. And that theme at the start of the game is such a fantastic piece of music. And when Davide said to me, you know, Milan uh, Ubisoft said to me, you know, we'd like to use that theme in this, in this, in this castle. Can you work it in there somehow? And I was like, oh my God, this is going to be fantastic. But also I was equally scared because I thought if I make a mess of it, people are going to think I'm completely useless, you know? Mm. So I had to think of a way to kind of make it work within, well, that's sort of direct quote. So weave it in with my tune. So I do a bit of Koji Kondo, a bit of me, a bit of Koji Kondo, a bit of me and kind of weave it all together. I know Nintendo really liked that arrangement. They really liked it a lot. So I, I think that might have been part of the factor that got me to do the Smash Brothers thing because they liked that arrangement so much. Mm, right. No, that, it was really, it was great fun to do. Uh, Davide Soliani, he's always, in, he's a classic Italian, he's always in tears. So he's in tears at that one. <laughs> and when we came to record it with a live orchestra, he was in tears again. So it was a complete crying fest for that one. Putting Mario <laughs> and Rabbids on, on the Switch for the first time after I purchased it. As a as a newfound parent, I'm emotional anyway. Uh, but <laughs> hearing the music, kind of like a Grant Kirkhope version of Mario is honestly, tears flew out of my eyes. Uh, a silly rate and uh, yeah I'm not ashamed to admit it because it was just utterly just joyous tracks um, you're saying like you're kind of anxious about maybe ruining the spirit of you know Mario's theme tune because you know it's, it's easier in one way but also there's a lot of expectation behind recreating classics from the past was that the same case with Goldeneye when you were giving like the, the Bond theme or was you just like was you uh, maybe it was too early on for you to worry about it? You just went guns blazing with it. Yeah, I guess I didn't. Fe- I didn't feel like that then. That I, I, that was mm. just like I guess I was just that rare. I'd only been there a few months when I started doing Goldeneye. I was just super excited to have well, wanting to have a job because I never had a job before, yeah. <laughs> and you know to get to work on you know Bond movies. I mean, I'm that I'm that kind of a, I'm an older guy, so for me, you know, as a kid, the Bond movies were the biggest thing of the year always when they came out. The best music, the best action that just f- fantastical stuff you know so to get to mess around with you know barry uh, monty norman's tune and was just unbelievable you know especially i was just new there i didn't know what i was doing mm. and i was just trying i guess i because i was doing sort of um you know remixes or you know bring the, the bond tune into the video game world or and i was just trying to think of different ways to do it like rocky or you know whatever you know i guess it's different to doing it to doing like the mario tune which has to be a certain way i felt but also, it, it's probably just naivety that I, I was too excited to worry about mm-hmm. it. And as you know, the, and now I'm older, I'm like panicking because I don't want to make a mess of it with Mario, you know. Also, <laughs> and also, Mario's like, you know, he's the biggest video games character in the world. And I was, I think I'm the first Western composer to do Mario, which is also another big burden to kind of, mm, you know, it's, right. you know it's half, it was half exciting and half scary because you just didn't want to mm. make a mess of it, you know. Yeah. So one of the things that I've been curious about is that... Uh, when you were working on kind of chip and MIDI-based systems, uh, like the uh, N64, the Super Nintendo, and the Game Boy, like to what degree did the technology affect the the vision for what the, the music was going to sound like? Like how similar would the N64, Banjo, or Donkey Kong soundtracks be if you had access to a full orchestra at that time? Well, it was massively restricting, you know, like, you know, on the N64, especially in the early days when the cartridge was super small, because as Nintendo usually go, the first cartridge is... They can't afford the, the the RAM's expensive, but as the, the console mm-hmm. life goes on, it gets cheaper and cheaper. So you can you can you get bigger and bigger RAM package in, packs ROM packs in the cartridge. You know, it was restrictive. I mean, you had to have, you know create tiny little MIDI orchestras 
that you'd put together that that sit inside the, that are sat on the on the game pack itself, and they've got a MIDI file that plays the samples. That's how it works. So that you know the the machine go and gets the samples, decompresses them, puts them into memory, and plays them from the MIDI file. You know that's how it works. GoldenEye was, I think, was it eight megabit. Was it? It was absolutely tiny. The cartridge mm-hmm. we had, like, I think we had one megabit for all the sound effects and music. It was, you know, mm-hmm. ridiculously tiny. You know, I mean, we had to loop symbols, like, you know, because a because a symbol's got like a, a you know, like a big attack, like a tsh, and then a longer decay where it kind of goes for ages mm-hmm. and ages and ages. There's no way we could afford that space, so we had to we had to loop symbols, which sounds ridiculous. So you, you kind of you get the main attack, and then you pick a point after the the, the initial start of the waveform, put in a loop, which goes. Because you, it's it's, it's oh, constantly yeah. going down in pitch, and then you t- put an envelope <laughs> on it, so the so the so the, the level got so you go you go dish. So that's why that's why it sounds so bloody awful because you couldn't you couldn't put anything in it, you know. And I kind of feel that in some respects it was a great way of making you be more creative. You had to do stuff, right? Yeah, you had to kind of really think how am I going to make this sound even half decent? Never mind, never mind. You know, people actually like it. You know, so I think that a lot of the guys that I know from back in those days. They really know how to write a tune because, like, you you really only had a good tune and a good set of chords, and that was it. There was no great huge swathes of noise like these days. You can put one finger on a keyboard and it sounds incredible. You got like a huge, great, mm-hmm. massive thing going on. You know, you just couldn't do that then. Like, even getting the reverb to work was hard. Right. You know, you had to be more creative. You had to like use multi- one sound might might sound great for this, but it might sound great pitch down for that or pitch right up for that. Traditionally, on a, a big sample library, you'd, you know, if you had a clarinet, for instance, you'd be able to, you know, the guys you'd, these days, you get these things where they'd go to the clarinet player, they'd get them to play every single note on the clarinet in every different style in like four or five velocities. So quiet, mm-hmm. a little bit louder, a bit louder, super loud, then legato and staccato and all the different things, different ways. And they sing it all together and you can play it as an instrument on a keyboard, right? But back then, we could only afford to, to sample one note. So we'd pick this middle, the middle note, say a C3, we'd sample that note try and get it as small as it possibly could, you know, get the attack at the start, then loop it later. And then um, we'd resample it. So like 44.1 kilohertz is CD quality. So there was nothing even close to that in the N64. Like most things were 16 kilohertz, if not eight. So, you know, it's, it's well under a quarter of the quality of like the sample rate. And then we'd stick it in, in and we'd, we'd assign it a key map, which means you could kind of say, you know, between this note and this note, it would play. But, you know, when you get one note and you make it go higher, it starts to sound Mickey Mouse, you know, and, and you get one note and go lower, it starts to go whoa, 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 like that, you know. Mm-hmm. So most instruments only really worked, you know, four or five semitones either side of the note at the start. Taking all that into account, it, got, it gets hard to make anything sound good at all, you know. So I often get asked why I use marimba a lot in Banjo-Kazooie, and it, you know, like I'm a big marimba fan, and I do like mm-hmm. it. But it, the real reason is because that the marimba, where you could sample one note, it was a super short sound. And it sounded good over the range of the keyboard, but mm, so right. so I used it all the time because it sounded good. That's why it's in there. And like the theremin, because that that sounded good too, because it was it was a tiny tiny sample, and it could play it all over the place, and it sounded great. So it wasn't so much as I was a massive theremin fan, although I do like it again. It's like I used it because it was super small and sounded good, and I could use it easy, and it saved memory. So I think that's you, interesting. Yeah, that, a lot of that stuff went on back then. I think part of the the sound that was uh, developed for Banjo and Donkey Kong, the the music to those um, soundtracks in particular on the N64 have like a really, a really nice kind of elegant minimalism to them where there's not as wide of a, a layering depth of instruments as you would get in some of your later uh, orchestral works, but uh, all of the instruments do a really good job of kind of contrasting each other and being noticeable in and of themselves. And so, you know, the the um, pieces were driven by really strong melodies and really strong counter melodies and um, very 
uh, very unusual combinations of instruments that um, that complemented each other in a way that's kind of immediately recognizable. So yeah, it's it's interesting that um, you know some of the choices were made for uh, for for those reasons. Yeah, I, th- I feel like, and also you know we had Tim Stamper who ran the company and, and Greg Mills who, who designed those games, you know, co- who were massive Nintendo fans. So they're always saying to all the composers at Rare, you know, mm-hmm. you know, listen to the Mario music, listen to those Nintendo tunes. You can listen to those tunes a million times over and never get tired of them. You need to be able to do that, and like that's. <laughs> That's scary. Like, it's not easy to do, you know, so we all, and I kind of feel also as the consoles got older, we got better at what we did. So, you know, the start of the console, it's always a bit rough because we couldn't get the instruments right. And then by the second or third game, let's say you're kind of more in your stride, so you understand it a bit more. Mm-hmm. Um, so maybe Banjo 2 sounded a bit better than Banjo 1 or, or DK64 was a bit better than Banjo 1 because it was, we got better by then, you know. And like, and sometimes, you know, you put odd things together because it just, because it was a, a small memory footprint and it just happened to be quirky and, and, and sound good, you know, like <laughs> completely by accident. So I think that it made you, you know, do daft things like have baritone sax and flute together or something weird that you wouldn't normally, normally expect because it just sounded funny or I don't know, it just seemed to map, seemed to work at the time. So it was all due to that memory constraint. So I think that it did make you be more creative and you had to think a bit more outside the box. And sometimes it was, it works and people really remember it, you know. And then by the end of the generation, there was the the fully voice acted Conker's Bad Fur Day. So like everything changes so much just yeah. within the course of a few years. Totally. It's wild. Yeah, definitely. One of the games that you worked on that was never released in this form, um, Project Dream, uh, which kind of transitioned into becoming Banjo-Kazooie, uh, transitioned during its development from the Super Nintendo to the N64. Uh, when you were composing for some of those early builds um did this affect the creative process that um that switch between systems well i, I never worked on the super nes like um dave the, oh, okay. D- dave wise was the kind of the, the super nes master and uh, so i was kind of doing game boy and when i first joined the dream team it was supposed to be on the snes but i never actually got to compose music for the snes because it switched mm, almost straight it. away to the n64 so um um i so i so i didn't actually write any music for the, for the super nes but I think Dream to Banjo changed in the style because Dream was very RPG-like and Banjo wasn't. Mm-hmm. So I had to kind of, I'd written like 107 pieces of music for Dream. And a lot of it just got scrapped because it just, it just wouldn't fit Banjo. So I had to start again and write more platform orientated music rather than kind of wander about the, you know, ambient sort of, uh, you know, uh, RPG music. I know that there is, I don't know, I don't know where it came from, but there's a... Uh a soundtrack for dream kind of floating around on the internet. And it's interesting to hear some of those early pieces with some familiar tunes that uh, went on to be adapted and changed uh, for uh, banjo and donkey Kong 64, both. Yeah. And Viva Pinata too. Like some, some of the tunes turn up in Viva Pinata oh, later. Yeah. yeah, I know. It's like, you know, I kind of felt like, it should, you know, I'd wasted a, a, a year and a half, whatever it was. So I kind of thought <laughs> I should get them, stick them in somewhere, you know, so, so, you know, waste, waste or whatnot. Yeah, you know, so, you know, some things just fit. Like, you know, when I first got to do banjo, uh, Tim and Greg said, you need to write as a, you know, an example of platform music to sort of prove you could do it. So I just kind of re- just thought I need to write a jolly tune. So I actually wrote, ended up writing Click Clock Woods. You know, that was like, that kind of thing. I just thought it was a jolly platform music, right? It wasn't for any level. It was just to kind of get the mood of the game and they said yeah that, that, that's that's right so let's get on with it you know so it wasn't until i came to the click clock words level that i thought oh that might fit that level it seems it seems to just fit the app the, the way it looked you know so and it wasn't mm-hmm. ranked for that level but it was it just fitted it really well so that's why I, so that's why i used it so you know sometimes that happens where you might write something that doesn't fit something else but you might use it later but i've got to say it doesn't happen that often to me I, i'm usually quite economical on what i do <laughs> and like so I, you mm-hmm. know I'm, I, I'm usually 
if it's not great, I'll not, I just dump it and forget about it and write something else. It's not often that I do that. So in games like Banjo-Kazooie, Tui, DK64, the, the games are quite famous for having their on-the-fly tracks change uh, in per environment. You know, the music will seamlessly just change yeah. into one another. Yeah. Do you have to think about that during the creative process or is that kind of the thing that happened afterwards? No, you do because like the, um, you know, when the level turns up and say, say Greg says to me, it's, I've got a level, it's got four areas, you need four channel fades, but that's what we call them, mm. channel fades. I have mm-hmm. to think about that while writing the music. It wasn't something I added later. So the MIDI file right. was like was like sixty. It's like sixteen tracks, right? Sixteen channels. So you could have sixteen things. Area one's one, two, three. Area two's four, five, six. You know, like that. You know, and the, the, the mm. beer probably a dedicated channel for, for music for, for underwater or for definite. And usually there'd be an ambient track in the MIDI file that would like, would tweak, that would like trigger bird tweaks and stuff like that. So that mm-hmm. ran from the MIDI file too. So you lost that track you know, straight away. <laughs> I'd allocate the tracks like that. And then I'd say to the programmer, I'd give the list and say, you know, here's the, uh, the channel areas and, you know, the channel fades. And then you would, we drew circles under the level that you can't see. And when you banjo across that, that line, it would trigger the, you know, the, right. the, the fade one, two, three to four, five, six, whatever it was. Mm-hmm. And it would work. That's how it worked. And well, it wasn't our idea. Like we stole it from, uh, well, I stole it from um, LucasArts when they had um, in Secret Monkey Island mm, games. Right. And they had that, that thing called the iMu system, which, mm. which basically did that but did it in FM synthesis. So I don't think it was the same way, but it was the same idea. So I had to work out how to try to get it with, with MIDI files. And, you know, at first I was like, oh God, I, I, how on earth is this going to work? But we kind of got it in the end. But I thought that was really effective. It worked so well in Banjo-Kazooie. It was, it was a great idea and it kind of, it just, you know, it, it just kept the whole thing, diff, you know, kept, kept it fluid all the time. You'd go from one area to the next and it would change. They kept the same tune, it kept going, but different instruments would come in. You know, I, I liked that. I thought I really worked hard to try and make that sound good. Yeah, that definitely stands out in that soundtrack. Is it easier to do that kind of thing when you're working with MIDI versus working with live instruments, though? Yeah, definitely. It's much easier because you've got that whole... Because like when you do it now, I mean, we did it in ukulele. Mm-hmm. But you're, you're dealing with like stereo waves, aren't you? So they're great big things that, you know, you have to... So you have to kind of run all sort of... This, if the six channel fades, you've got to run six stereo waves at the same time. And they're all being tracked, but not necessarily in memory. So mm-hmm. they're kind of virtual tracks. But then the minute it comes to, to you know, to crossfade to the next tune... During that crossfade, you're running two stereo waves at the same time, so that instantly doubles the memory footprint, doubles the processing. You know, it, that's, that's all got, got taken into account. You know, so it's it's more difficult, and it's more difficult to jump around. Like you know, with the MIDI file, like things like Mr. Violin, Banjo Kazooie, you can make it go faster and faster and faster just by speeding it mm-hmm. up. And the instruments didn't get Mickey Mouse, but with a proper stereo wave, if you speed it up, it just goes, it just gets higher in pitch, right? So mm, right. those things are harder to do. Well, yeah, I guess you can't do it really. I mean, I guess there are bits of software that do, but I don't know if games can run them. It's funny, really, because you think back, like on the the cartridges back in the N sixty four days, we're kind of back to that now. You know, the, the switch is mm. back to being a card mm-hmm. that you put in a RAM pack that you put in, uh, and it can it's instant access. It's way faster. You've got you haven't got that kind of laser seek time where it goes. Right. You know, you have to, you know, the, the the game wants this information. The laser has to go off and find it, load it, decompress it, load it into RAM, and pl- and use it. You know, it's like. So we're back to that kind of instant access. I'm sure that Sony and Microsoft will be going, you know, disc free at some point, and in the next console, they'll just be like Nintendo. They'll be onto, you know, some kind of, you know, uh, flash flash memory that you just plug in, and that's it. Because um, it's way it's it's way faster to get to. There's, the load times are like, yeah. you know, way under the what they are now. It's just makes more sense. Long as they can get the space, right? I'm sure it'll be, it, it's ironic that it's kind of returned to that because it's cheap again now. You know. Yeah, I kind of think that uh, that the discs aren't they don't feel like they're being used for that much these days. It feels more like an authentication check because mm-hmm. the, the uh, modern consoles kind of download everything to the 
hard drive anyways. Yeah. And I know that the uh, Sony and Microsoft have both talked up the solid state drives for the next generation of consoles. Yeah, so, it makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. It's kind of a, taking a, another kind of roundabout way to a similar end goal there. Mm. Uh, so yeah, we've, we've talked about um, the transition between some of the areas in, uh, in these older N64 games and, and how the music was, uh, was considered to be very multimodal in that way. And uh, what we wanted to bring in, uh, let's listen to another piece of music. This is actually two pieces of music. Uh, it's a couple of my favorites from Donkey Kong 64. And, and they're not, you know, they're, they're very kind of subtle pieces. But um, I think that they, they really kind of epitomize the uh, Grant's N64 sound very well. And they have uh, some really wonderful kind of melodies working within them. And uh, I, I just find them very relaxing <laughs> to yeah. listen to. Um, this is the uh, Fungi Forest Mushroom Stem and then uh, the Fungi Forest Mushroom Top from Donkey Kong 64. And uh, I just think it does a good job of, um, of kind of showing how kind of malleable some of these compositions are and how uh, the same tune can be worked into multiple different kind of styles and moods. And uh, that's always the thing that I kind of walked away with on the uh, on your N64 games, especially when it came to some of the overworlds in uh, in these different games and seeing how something that had so much personality already, like uh, like Gruntilda's Lair theme or the Isle of Hags theme could be so deftly transitioned into something that fit a completely different mood, that fit a completely different, almost musical genre from time to time. And uh, I was always very impressed by, you know, just how kind of adaptable all of these pieces of music are. If you get a good tune, you can do it, you can do it any way you like. You can dress it up in anything you want, metal or you name it, anything. I think it's mm -hmm. all about that. If you get a good tune and a good set of chords and it's, you know, you can do it, like you can do acoustic guitar with it and that's it. Or, you, you know, that's a testament of a great piece of music, I think. Like, you know, the Beatles tunes, you can play it on an acoustic guitar and it's still fantastic. And you can dress it up in whatever you like, and it's still fantastic. That's the watermark, right? That's how you, that's how you know something. It's something's good. You can if you can do it anyway, and it still sounds good. So I think we all, you know, all of us at Rare tried super hard to write, you know, a good tune back then. That was a that was the the kind of the the diehard thing to do. Is a good tune was essential.
So when you were writing tunes and you know turn them into audio delights, um, the 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 back in the day, the Rare Barn was kind of notorious for its kind of secrecy between development studios. Was that or oh, development team? Sorry, was that the case with the audio side of things, or were you kind of all together? You know, like showing each other your latest tracks and or was it more of a competition thing like with the programmers and developers? When I got there there was a music block, so that, that and that when I was the last composer to join Rare at mm. that so mm-hmm. so Robin Beanland, Graham Norgate, Evelyn Fisher and Dave Wise were all in the same kind of in the music block. Because they had no more space, I was stuck in this thing called the chicken shed. <laughs> so uh, <laughs> I was in this this kind of tiny little room that I think it was a chicken shed at one point because <laughs> it was you know it was a, it was a, a proper farmhouse. Um, so I was I never got actually got to be in the music block. But then I, after, after when I did that for a little while, I got I got dragged into the, well, not dragged, but I was moved into the actual, the barn with the dream team who were doing dream and then became Banjo-Kazooie. So I was the first composer mm. to be in with the team. And then it's, and then as time went on, it got a bit more like that, that composers were, were in with the team a little bit. Because it was quite right. nice to be in the block. You could kind of, you had to work on headphones, of course, but you could, you could see the artwork around you, you could, more camaraderie, you know, that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. So I think the, but, you know, but the audio guys, we did get to know what each other were working on because, you know, Rare had a thing where they had these coded keys where you couldn't get into, the, the doors were all yeah. coded. So you couldn't get into another another barn to look at what another team was doing. It was all like, you know, it was, you could, the key wouldn't work. But when you're an audio guy, as you as you move from game to game, you know, your keys start to work everywhere, <laughs> you know, so yeah. you could get into a lot of different places and see a lot of stuff. Um, so, you know, it, it could get around what people were doing, but I think Tim and Chris Stamper felt that a little bit of friendly competition was good for the games. Mm. And I think it was. I think it did work that way. Yeah, evidently, yeah. Yeah, and I think that, um, you know, and it got to be a bit of a joke, I guess, you know, to, you know, towards the end of it all. But yeah, and even when we moved to the, the, the new building just, just a mile down the road, it was still the same way. It was still like, it wasn't so much keys, but we had these kind of lanyards we used to wear that would get us through sensors on doors. So yeah, yeah, it was always a bit like that. A bit strange. Um, and I, I was a bit, when I first got there, it was a bit weird, but I could see why. And it, it did work, you know. It was just dawned on me today. Like, I remember Chris Eva saying, Oh, you know, we were, you know, in, doing the Conquer thing, and no one could see what we were working on. And when we showed it off, everyone was jealous of our tech. And yeah, it just dawned on me, like, maybe the audio was the same, but it's really good to know that, you know, at some point you all were kind of mucking in together, so to speak. Yeah, I think whenever we, we didn't really work on games together very much, it was usually mm. a game. You just got a game to do yourself. So you did all the music, all the sound effects. Mm-hmm. And that changed a little bit as time went on, but it was mostly that. I mean, I, Chris was saying that I can remember, distinctly remember um, being frog marked across to the Conquer Barn after we'd been working on Dream for quite a while and not really getting anywhere mm. with it. Because we had this elaborate floor system that used a lot of polygons. That it, just, it just couldn't run it very well. Tim said, right, everybody out, let's go and, watch, go and look at Conquer. So, and it was amazing. It was that Conquer's 12 Tales at the start. 12 Tales, yeah. Yeah, this amazing start fight, start level with this windmill and all the, the lightning strikes. It was incredible. We were like, oh, God, this looks fantastic. And then we used that kind of, tra- <laughs> that kind of traditional Mario, um, using big polygons on the floor, you know, and all over the place. So you could run at a really fast speed. And, I, and literally that, that changed that changed it. That day we went to see Conquer. Tim said, right, that's Dream's finished. We're going to do a platform game. Start again. Let's do what they're doing. And that's that's what that's what happened. Hmm. And I remember we were all massively depressed that their game looks so fantastic. <laughs> One of the things I've always been interested in is that you have a uh, proclivity towards heavy metal music. Um, I but do. The, <laughs> the music that you were uh, that you're writing, um, probably you know, most famously back in the N64 days, uh, was borrowing more from. Gosh, I, I wouldn't even know what to label it uh, genre-wise, but it borrows elements of classical music, even kind of borrows elements from uh, children's music. And so, you know, with these being 
such different, um, almost conflicting genres in a way. How do you go from one to the other and still kind of retain a passion for what you're creating? I don't know. I guess I think that's weird because I think it's because as a kid, right, I was a classically trained trumpet player. So from six, mm-hmm. I was playing trumpet and I went through school and went, and went to university and did a, a degree in music, you know, at the Royal the Cozy Music and, and classical trumpet playing. So I was properly trained like that, but I was a kind of self-taught metal guitar player from like 12 or 13. Those were the two worlds that I kind of existed in. I was like, you know, Saturday mornings I'd be there playing in an orchestra with all my friends, you know, and then during the week I'd be like playing metal with my other friends, you know. So I think that that's why it sounded like that because I was, I was at that, those kind of two weird, weird sides of me that kind of, um, mm. it's just the way it was. And I, it sort of worked out, I think, in the, in the end, it, you know. But um, yeah, definitely. I've always been a metal fan, like I still am. So um, yeah, yeah. But, but like, it, but, but equally, I'm, I love movie scores now and, you know, you know, that kind mm. of things and, and classical music too. So that's just the way I am. I think I've got that to extremes. <laughs> so musically speaking, are there elements of heavy metal that have kind of informed the way that you go about composing the uh, non-metal types of tracks, you know, elements from the genre that you carry over and kind of in, inform the way that you uh, write the other pieces? Yeah, I think definitely Queensryche. Uh, I, I, like, I really mm. like Queensryche sort of, um, the first album, Warning, Rage for Order, and um, um, uh, 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 Mind Crime. And Rage for Order is my favorite album. I feel that's quite a deep, a deep album, that one. Mm-hmm. Uh, and there's an awful lot. I like the harmony that Queen Drake used. And I did use it mm. a lot in some of the music. I mean, Drop Zone's got, got, got quite a lot of that in it. Like in, in my head, it may, it may not sound that way, but it's yeah. the way I thought about it. So any kind of, anytime I do like a darker level or a, or a big boss piece, I'm probably thinking more about that kind of harmony. Yeah, definitely. It definitely bleeds through. I can I can spot it in my own right. If I, if I go back to old pieces I've not heard for a while, I can spot it a mile away. I think Perfect Dark too had quite a lot of it in there. Hmm. I'm always interested when uh, when people take uh, some of the songwriting conventions from one genre and use it in another. Uh, and so, yeah, I think that there's, you know, metal has a uh, such a strong emphasis on the harmonies, like you were saying, on counter melodies and on... Uh, on just creating like really strong riffs. Uh, and, you know, you, you kind of see that bleeding through a little bit. Yeah, like on that last level in Goldeneye, the cradle level, it's got that riff that goes da 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 That's a metal riff of mine. Like on my, on my, I've got a YouTube channel that I never use. There's a track on there called Absolution mm-hmm. and uh, by the metal band I was in years ago. And I wrote the song and that riff is from that song. So if you listen, <laughs> if you listen, to, the, if you listen to that song on YouTube, on, uh, on there you'll hear that riff on that song. I liked it. So I used it in the golden eye level for, for cradle. Mm, very cool. On the subject of darker music in a way, uh, one of my, I guess some of my favorite pieces of, of yours are, uh, the pieces that you would write for, for creepy levels and haunted houses and haunted castles and all of that. And you'd get that in banjo and donkey Kong and, and especially grabbed by the ghoulies, which, you know, I was, uh, I was a little bit late too, because I, I didn't own an Xbox for a long time until after it came out. But, you know, right when I jumped into it, that was one where you have that moment of like, oh, I'm, I'm going to like this, <laughs> like immediately. And, uh, you know, it was just a soundtrack of Grant Kirkhope haunted house pieces, <laughs> which were always my favorite beforehand. And now it's just like loads of them all all at once. And so that was, that was really fun. And I always got the sense that it was fun to compose those types of pieces, especially. Yeah. Like when Greg, for, when we finished Banjo 2 and Greg said, we're going to do a haunted house game. I was like, fantastic. And I was thinking, cause I love Danny, I love Danny Elfman <laughs> and I, I love his kind of dark music. Um, and I was just thinking this is going to be great fun to do. And I, mm-hmm. I was trying to think of a way to do it. So I ended up writing, it's probably like 46, 47 pieces of music that just rotated 
in the in when you wander around. So it, when when you boot the game up, it 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 picks a playlist of, of those forty six pieces and puts them in an order and plays them in that order when you're wandering around. Mm-hmm. So it's never the same twice um, or mostly. Um, uh, and so and that's why it sounds the way it does. I just wrote a little you know one minute, two minute, three minute bits of spooky music that didn't really wasn't sort of themed to anything apart from the fact that it was spooky and, and it's just mm-hmm. played in, ran, in a random order as you wander about. And all, all the baddies had, had their own dedicated um, sort of fighting music, but the wander around music was just that random generated stuff, which, you know, it was just great just to write. If I'd like, if I might just get a 20 second idea of something spooky. I just write, I just write it and then stick it in the game. Or I might find, write something that was three minutes long and stick it in the game. So they're all different lengths and some are short, some are long, you know. So I really feel, funny enough, me and my son were talking about this yesterday in the car while we were driving somewhere. And he said he was talking about Grab by the Ghoulies. Um, and he can even remember some of the individual um, ambient pieces that play in the game, those pieces. Yeah. Um, which is, you know, I wasn't really expecting that, you know. And so I think that, I feel like Grab by the Ghoulies got a bit of a bad rap because, it was a, you know, we've just been bought by Microsoft. All the Nintendo people mm-hmm. hated us. You know, um, um, they just, they didn't like the fighting style. It was like, just waggle the stick around a little bit. But we've tried to make something that was simplistic that was fun. So I guess mm-hmm. they all thought the fighting was a bit too simplistic. The kind of the reviewers and the people that played it at the time. But it's a, it's a super fun game as good as I kind of feel when they released it on Rare Replay, people started playing it and started getting it and going, oh, it is good mm. fun. It's, you know, I think that we had a bit of a bad rap for that game because it was the, I think it was the only game we brought out for the Xbox. And Microsoft bought us, you know, because we made broad appeal and they had, they had no real sort of broad appeal makers. But there's no way we could have possibly generated that much broad appeal content, you know, for that console. So it's only, mm-hmm. only like 80 people in, at Rare or 80, 90 or so at the time. You just couldn't, we could, we, we could never have done that to enough to satisfy Microsoft's de- demand for broad appeal stuff. So we kind of got a bad rap for that. You know, it was good for, I mean, you know, I think it's a comical, funny horror house game thing, you know. So yeah, definitely. Yeah. yeah, it's good. Like that was the first game I saw when I walked into QA from a, you know in of, of that year. It was just right. like, oh, this is actually happening. And like, and I heard the intro, grab by the ghoulies, like from every TV <laughs> blaring out loud. And, you know, and I've played the game so much that at some point we had to turn it. Like audio was just off at one point. I know that's against QA rules, but I was right, just like, yeah. I can't, I can't take this. Like, it's just like the familiar of how I've heard this tune. Like, oh, God, and it does send you into a bit of a craze. Like, what a terrific compliment for uh, for Grant's work. <laughs> but it, it's just so embedded in my brain like to a point where i've actually kind of erased it from my mind it right. goes for um the same for saber wolf on gba and dkc2 played them so much for work at the time right. i just can't remember what happens but i yeah i replayed it on rare replay yeah um just because i wanted to see my name in the credits with like people like you in the same frame again i'm like yes that was my moment of glory <laughs> and uh yeah yeah it's still a hugely enjoyable game and we covered it on kena rinse a while back now but yeah um you were right about the the whole uh, attitude towards Rare at the time being bought out by Microsoft, you know. Yeah. Now it's kind of the norm that Microsoft just buy people and no one really cares anymore. They're like, hey, yeah, we bought uh, Obsidian now. And no one really bats an eyelid anymore. Mm. There was a bit of that going on still. But uh, back in the day, man, it was such a controversial move. That was brutal. Yeah, definitely brutal. I mean, uh, yeah, I think we got a big, you know, people didn't like us for that reason. I think all the Nintendo fanboys just disowned Rare. Immediately, you know. Same, really. I mean, and I was, I was part of it. I was a massive fanboy, as you know, playing all the N64 games, and then I was in. And yeah, there was two games on the Xbox. You had the Conquer Live and Reloaded, and then you had Grab by the Ghoulies. And it was just kind of like, I was kind of expecting like a library of stuff to appear in front of me. And it was like, no, we're just working on this. And then we've got a few Game Boy Advance games, which is kind of cool that Microsoft are working on GBA games. Because that kind of still, that, that kind of, well, that's like now, isn't it? Where Microsoft are working on games on other platforms. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but yeah, the, the, I remember sneaking into like Hugh Ward's 
office when he wasn't there and seeing games that were in development which is quite fun like right. we, we shouldn't have done that but we did and we saw prototypes of Viva Pinata when it's called My Garden and Banjo X and Doc. there was a lot coming like I was like oh man this this is like a Charlie and the Chocolate Factory kind of thing not to get too off course but grab by the ghoulies like just listening to the skeletons track now that we've got in the document it's just, it's just stuck in my head forever and uh, I you know as much as I've heard that soundtrack over the over the um that year I was there yeah it's um it's just it's just brilliant it's just it's just Grant Kirkhope you know what I mean yeah no, I think the skeleton tune's probably classic me <laughs> you know um, mm-hmm. if I've got a classic sound that's probably it it's got the xylophone in it which I, I think goes back to some of the old like Mickey Mouse cartoons where you get the skeletons playing the ribcage as yeah. xylophones but you know with the xylophones being such a prominent instrument and in a lot of your other work it kind of ties those two ideas together yeah uh, yeah definitely yeah I mean, we had great for making that game you know I mean you know, I think that, and also for me, it was a big job because I did all the sound effects and because you could break lots of things in that game and pick things up and hit yeah. them, I had, to, I had to have this massive table full of sound effects for every, every cover of the breakables that was just <laughs> got bigger and bigger and bigger every day. And it was like, oh God, I've got to find a sound, you know, for throwing hamburgers at somebody or throwing <laughs> bottles or breaking a, you know, a, like a, 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 a picture frame over your head or a pool cue or, you know, just got bigger and bigger and bigger. So that was a big job for me to kind of get all the effects done for that game. But it was, um, you know, you, you you can't you can't not have fun on a on a haunted house game. It's just it's just the best, right? Yeah. Yeah. My favorite thing about the haunted house music is the the types of instruments that are used. Like I just love the uh, old out of tune organ and the harpsichord and the theremin and just all these instruments that you really don't hear, but they have such like distinctive and such like really strong sounds. And so, you know, partly just because of. Uh, of listening to to your work and and the work of other composers that were working within video games at the time, especially, um, I had a really strong sense of like what haunted house music was supposed to sound like, and so I got really curious, like where is everybody getting this from? You know, is there a genre of music that this is all based on? And as I searched around, like I didn't really come up with a lot. Like there was. There were some uh, classical pieces, just kind of one-off standalone classical pieces that were like kind of canonized in early film as like this is the the haunted skeletons music, you know, that you would see like pop up again and again in films just because it was public domain at the time. And, you know, some of the sound kind of built that way. But like where where does that haunted house sound come from? <laughs> I don't know. Is it, I'm, I'm, It's probably like cartoons, I would think, like say Disney stuff or, mm, yeah. or maybe like the Adams family, or, you know, that kind of thing or the monsters back in the day. And I think that, mm, okay. you know, I do think the human beings are sort of pre-programmed to hear certain things at certain points. And I think that right. composers just can't help but write that kind of music. It's like I said the other day, like someone says to you, it's a frozen ice forest. You're going to think about, you know, or a frozen ice castle. It would be like spiking, like Celeste and Glockenspiel and Pizzicato strings. You're going to, it's mm-hmm. like painting with notes in a way. You know, I think you, you just expect to hear certain things at certain points because, because movies have pre-programmed all of us to expect certain things. So I, I think it just, it just comes from back then. It has to be that kind of Disney cartoon thing or Scooby-Doo or they just sound that way. And so it, it's just, yeah, okay. that's going to sound that way forever. That's just the way it is. You know? <laughs> Well, I'm not arguing. It's a good sound and I like it. Yeah, it's great <laughs> Let's fun to listen do. Listen to uh, to skeletons from Grabbed by the Ghoulies. Thank you. 
we are transitioning into more of the uh, orchestral phase of, of your career. And this was really exciting, I think, when uh, when Viva Pinata came out and we heard, um, you know, we, we saw that you were on the soundtrack and we ended up hearing something that was so different, but at the same time had kind of like that familiar personality. It, it kind of created like a like a really strange feeling the first time I heard it because like this definitely has the Grand Kirko personality, but like, I'm just not used to it being like a full orchestra and, you know, th- these kind of like kind of subtle whispering, beautiful pieces that, uh, you know, it was, it's, it's just such a different sound. And, uh, how, how was that transition? You know, you, you probably had a very different vision for Viva Pinata and some of the works that you've done after that, but, um, it's, it was very interesting to hear that transition take place. Yeah. I feel like because I spent such a lot of time in, you know, sitting in orchestras, it wasn't a big deal to kind of switch to orchestra. I'd already used orchestral mm. samples in Grab by the Ghoulies. So, you know, it didn't really scare me. In fact, if anything, I liked it better because I was so used to that being in that world, you know. And I wanted to, I wanted to write sort of my version of like Vaughan Williams and Elgar. Those are my, those are my two sort of favorite mm. 20th century English composers who have that kind of fantastic English sound. And I wanted to have that English country garden. So I just tried to be you know, like them. I know I can't get anywhere near how good they are, but that was, I was trying to get some of that into it. And I also feel like, you know, I think when, as a, any composer or any instrumentalist, you, you, there's things that you just do that you just do. Uh, and I think that's like when I hear Brian May play guitar, I can spot it a mile away, even though I, know, I, don't, I don't know it's him. Just the way he phrases mm-hmm. things or his vibrato or Eddie Van Halen, you know, I, I can pick it up a mile away. And I kind of feel like We've all got that thing inside us. So even though I was writing more classical music, you know, it's sort of, you know, bass sort of stuff. It still has my sort of harmonic feel in it and my my sort of right. melodic feel in it. I mean, good or bad. I mean, that's just the way that I write, you know. So I think that's why it, you can sort of maybe pick up and little bits and pieces that sound a bit like me from the earlier games, you know. Mm-hmm. That was such an amazing experience to get to actually go to a live orchestra and record it in Prague and st- sit there and go, oh my God, that's amazing. Like, you know, I was in tears most of the time. Mm-hmm. There's nothing like a room full of people playing your music. It's absolutely incredible. There's no superlative that you can think of that that puts that adequately, you know, in people's heads. It's it's just amazing. You know, that was a, such a diff, such a departure for me, and it was you know I got that BAFTA nomination for that. That was just ridiculous. Like, what the hell mm. is going on here? You know, like what a that was really special time for me to write that music. It was just right at the right moment. It was great that we got to use live orchestra. The game was different. It was a a, a real joy that was. Yeah, it's a it, the piece that we've picked to include in the show is uh, Sunrise Whisper, which is I don't know, it, it just kind of it hits me <laughs> every time I listen to it. Like the entire soundtrack, and uh, I think especially I love the uh, soundtrack for uh, Trouble in Paradise as well because there's the extra kind of like desert and uh, and kind of wintry zones. Yeah, that um, have a very different sound to them, and it's kind of interesting to see or hear rather as as those diverge but um something about just the just the this very kind of traditional classical feeling and um this is a very emotional piece i think i like it like with the, all the titles right i then the, the soundtrack came out after i left rare so mm-hmm. i didn't pick the names um so oh, just okay. justin cook who was the lead designer on pinata picked the name so i really can't remember which name is which piece because i kind of called them like day one you know day two night mm. three night four you know so in a very you know <laughs> that's how i did it because it was just you know i had no idea what they're going to be a bit of a soundtrack release um and so i get confused as to which is which but um that tranquil hours 
that's the that's the kind of one from the first game that I know Greg Mill thinks is my best piece I've ever written. Um, mm. He likes that one, and mine mine is called Bedtime Story, which was on the second on uh, Trouble in Paradise, uh, and that's the one that I really liked a lot. And that's when I went to back to record the the second lot of music. That's a, the piece that the orchestra played last in the recording session, and I had to get up on the podium and say and thank everybody, and I just mm. <laughs> burst into tears. I sort of went, I just <laughs> want to say thank you. Oh, I got like, so I remember that really distinctly. But yeah, I loved writing that music. It was it was such a fantastic thing to do. Yeah, yeah. For, for me personally, as like a fan, hearing you know the 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 rare games on the on the three sixty and seeing them, it felt like return to form if that's a phrase to use like people are all down on the grab by the goodies which to me was a rare game through and through but people didn't see it that way because they wanted you know banjo 3 and donkey kong racing and all this that they'd seen on the gamecube but like things like viva pinata trouble in paradise nuts and bolts you know these games are like i feel like at the time they were kind of they weren't really appreciated and they were just like, oh, if they turn Banjo into a, into a puzzle car game and, or they've got a gardening game out. But you look at it now and you think these games are so ahead of their time. Mm. Like, that you, can, you can see why they put Rare Replay together because the games on the 360, you know, and, and the Xbox and, you know, previous, they're just classics. And the music for, for Viva Piñata is just, like, it's, if I ever got into gardening, man, like that would be in my, <laughs> in my headset all the time. And also, like, you know, the fact that Classic FM started playing Viva Pinata, like, I, I remember at the time saying to, I said, look, you know, this could be, 
we could probably really get airplay from this on 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 Classic FM, and they wouldn't believe me. Yeah, oh no, it's not going to happen, mm. you know. And like, and it, eventually it did. I can't believe it. Like, you know, <laughs> uh, it might take a few years, but it got there in the end. Uh, you know, I think that like with nuts and bolts, I feel like nuts and bolts sort of predated Minecraft in some respects because it was putting blocks yeah, together yeah. to build things. You know, it's like it was really ahead of its time. But you know, people wanted a ban- didn't want. I guess it should have been another IP, maybe not Banjo Kazooie. I think mm. people wanted a banjo platform and when a racing game or, you know, the thing with cars thing came along, it was like, oh, it's not right. So mm. I, can, I do understand that. But, you know, think about that. When my son was little, like two or three, and we moved to America. No, he's probably four or five. Um, like when his mates used to come over to play, they always wanted to play Nuts and Bolts. And they'd never heard of Banjo-Kazooie mm. before that. And they, because mm. they loved building things. So they like building crazy cars and planes and all that stuff you could do with nuts and bolts. And that's, they loved that more than anything. And I kind of thought, it's a real shame that Microsoft didn't push that harder when the game came out, you know, in America, because I feel like, you know, young kids absolutely loved it. Like that's, that's the only game him, him and his friends wanted to play, but they didn't know, they didn't know Banjo-Kazooie before, right? So that's why. Mm-hmm. In this industry where everyone's sharing stuff online all the time, like with Super Mario Maker 2 as a recent example, Banjo-Kazooie Nuts and Bolts was just a bit ahead of its time and literally in that, fact that you know, Twitter wasn't really a massive thing at the time and you couldn't really just pump out a thing from the console to a Twitter um, account on the 360 at the time because, well, what we had was banjokazooie.com, right? And it was kind of all of a bit of um, a hurdle. It was, you know, you had to do what you had to do at the time to make it work. But now with sharing stuff online, it's so yeah, seamless. Yeah, and, I, and like you said, I think Rare Replays is, was a good idea. I think people have discovered those games like you grab by the ghoulies and nuts and bolts and go, oh, you know, we're looking back on it, you know, because Banjo's not been out for a long time. It's, mm-hmm. they, 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 they're really enjoying it. So, you know, I think it was a cool idea to put that game out. Yeah, but you think if it was remade or remastered or made again today, it would have a lot more social hooks in it to make Twitter and Facebook all kind of a viable thing, whereas it was, that wasn't, you know, back in the day, that wasn't really a thing to do. Yeah, again, like the 360 stuff for me, it's just, you know, uh, it's just ahead of its curve, man. Mm. And that's, that's the reason why I ended up falling in love with Rare from an early age of, you know, well, 14, Goldeneye was the one that caught me. Yeah. It's that the games always felt like they were the future, but they were in your hands. And that's why you... and. They played well, they sounded, they looked great. And it was just like, this is the future in my hands and I'm absolutely obsessed by it. And every time you picked up a, you saw the, you know, the R logo on a box, you were like nine times out of 10, you're guaranteed an amazing experience. And again, like nuts and bolts, Viva Pinata, Trouble in Paradise and, you know, and games of that era from Rare. I feel like they got kind of just shrugged off a bit because the 360 was so monstrously huge but again it's not what people were wanting from rare and i just think oh man like you look you look back now and whoever kind of dismissed viva pinata back in the day like shame on you do you know what i mean and i uh, and i must admit i really feel like that kind of golden age of rare sort of prior to the microsoft sale you know i, I really feel that chris and tim stamper were that was the reason that rare were the company they were no doubt about it i mean they, obviously they had good staff but those two brothers that they'd and they'd made such amazing things as ultimately playing the game on the spectrum. You know, they just had that magic touch. There's no doubt about it. And they always inspired the staff to be better. Like there was never a time I wrote a piece and Tim said, that's fantastic. He used to go, that's great. But what about this? There was always an and at the end of that, that mm-hmm. sentence that goes, yeah, but what about this? Couldn't you just do, you know, I'd go, oh yeah, that's a good idea. You know, I feel like that stuff just bleeds down. And when you've got two strong guys at the top of the company, like who really know what, they just absolutely in tune. They never thought. They just they always knew exactly what each other was thinking. And I can feel that like that's the reason that Rare was great in the day. Like no doubt about it. And when they left, I really felt like I missed something. That's part of the reason that I left in the end. Mm. I missed Tim and Chris not being there. I mean, I worked more closely with Tim than Chris, but some guys worked more. It's just the way the teams worked out. But I found Tim just to be just to be a genius. I loved talking to him. I loved you know interacting with him, and I, it just made me want to work harder. And I really feel like Rare lost that when they left. 
it just wasn't the same ever again. You know, I missed that. Like, I, you know, I, I really thought I'd be at Rare forever until I was literally 65 and, you know, then I'll go work in the garden or something. I don't know. You know, I really thought I'd be there forever. <laughs> and, I, you know, the fact that I wanted to leave, I couldn't believe it. What a start for me to be there for those 12 years with, the, with those guys. It was absolutely fantastic. Yeah, you mean you mentioned you leaving Rare and it kind of being a, an unthinkable thing when you first started or when you're in the thick of it. What, between 2008 and 2012, you know, you, there's nothing really on the history books of you working. Like, what, what were you doing, if you don't mind me asking? Well, so, I went, a- I moved, so I moved to Baltimore, right, to join Big Huge Games. And then so right, we, yeah. we worked on Kingdom of Amalore for those four years. Right, So okay. when we first got there, Big Huge Games were owned by THQ and we're making a game called That's uh, right. oh, God, Crucible, which sort of was Reckoning, really. That's it. And then THQ were, had were financial trouble, so they, they put the company up for sale. And I was literally, I'd only been there like six months. I was like, oh my God, I'm going to get fired. I have to go home I'm with no job. You know, it was like a, I'm with the whole family across there. And then Kurt Schilling's company, 38 Studio, stepped in and bought us. And they had that, that Copernicus, that huge, great, big World of Warcraft clone. And we and then we incorporated that kind of law into rec, into Crucible, which then turned into Kingdoms of Amalur Reckoning, because like Copernicus was set in the Amalur universe, right? It was written by you know um, Ari Salvatore and all that stuff, mm-hmm. and that's what slowed it down. So we because and then we, you know it took us a, a bit of time to get that get that into the new universe, and we made the game and it came out. So that's what the, those four years I spent. I was audio director at that company, making that game. So I wrote the music as well. So, so how haven't you? This is a kind of a, another question that's a bit weird. But how come you haven't lost your accent? Because you you sound like you're still from <laughs> Northern England, if you don't mind me saying. Yes, like- I'm never going to lose my accent. I, I I really hate that the Brits that come over here and adopt that pseudo American thing. I just don't like it. I'm never going to do that. Like I, you know, when I got a subway, right, I will say tomato 150 times until the guy, <laughs> I don't, I'm not going to say tomato ever. And I don't care if it takes 150 times for the guy to put a tomato in my sandwich. I'm just going to say tomato. And I just, you know, <laughs> my, funny enough, my daughter, she was two when she moved here. She's pretty American. But my son was, must have been five or six. And his accent's still pretty British, which is unusual for hmm. someone that young. Yeah. You know, so I just think I'm never doing that. I think sometimes you just, you check, you might change a word because they might not get it. Like we say, you know, like you've got, um, you know, we, when you, we, we call them leads. Like a lead is what you plug into a, an amplifier to a guitar. Uh-huh. You know, you call yeah. it a cable here. You can't, a lead, they don't know what that is. So there's this thing <laughs> yeah. like, little things like that, you just kind of learn rather than fight about it. You just say, I want a, I want a cable and they'll, they'll get it. And mm-hmm. you, don't, you don't plug things in, you can hook them up. That's a bit different, that kind of thing. Mm. Oh, you know? right, of course, yeah. Yeah, so these little things. Yeah, there's little, yeah, little things like that, especially in the audio world. And I remember... Mm. I was at Big Huge Games at the start and we were using a, a, a sound effects engine called FMOD. I said to the guy, can you just reduce that value to 0.6? And he just looked at me. So it's just a what? I said, well, not point, I said 0.6. So what do you mean? So well, you're not, he, he thought I was saying not 0.6. Just anything but 0.6, please. Yeah, they wouldn't say, yeah, they'd say 0.6. They wouldn't say not. So I, I was like saying to the guy, you know, looking at him thinking, you've been, you been cheeky to me. I'm the audio director, you know, like, you know, you need to do what I say. Uh, but he was just like, didn't know what I was saying. So I think you did, so I think my accent's just going to stay the same. I'm not I'm not losing that. I can just imagine you just furious, like consciously furiously, just trying to stay your accent while you're ordering. I don't know a subway sandwich or something like. Don't say it. Don't come on. I'm Grant Kirkhope. I'm from the north. You know what I mean? Like I know. Yeah, just, I like talking to you. I feel like I'm getting. I'm more northern. Like I think me and my wife both noticed that our accents have got softer. Definitely the softened out. Like we we've got yeah. DVDs of us. You know when the kids were little, we sound like Emmerdale Farm bumpkins. You know, you know it's like hey, come on, hey, hey, bye, go on. It's, it's literally like that. So our accents are definitely softer because people just don't yeah. get the inflections at all. Mm-hmm. And I talk fast anyway, right? So that makes it harder. Well, uh, we spoke about um, about kingdoms of Amor there. I've always gotten the sense that 
just based on the way that you talk about the game, that this was a project that you were kind of especially proud of? Is this mostly because it was kind of your first independent project post-Rare? Or like, what about it brought out that that passion in you when you were talking about Kingdoms of Amalur? I think that I, when I came to that game, I, I just thought, you know, it's going to be a big orchestra because it's a big epic game. And I really wanted to go for it. And I just thought, you know, mm-hmm. I've spent so many years listening to John Williams and going, you know, I just can't do that. It's so technically difficult. Um, I thought, bollocks, I'm just going to do it. So I came to that first boss piece called Baylor, and I just thought, I'm just going to absolutely try my absolute hardest to write something that's just <laughs> better than I've ever written before. And so, you know, in my own little way, I kind of felt I got a little, you know, a little bit, I'm obviously John Williams is a god and I'm nowhere near him, but I just felt like I'd, I'd managed to get a little bit of the way there. I understood it met- better. Mm. Like I spent that entire, I used to listen to the, the first three Harry Potter soundtracks that he wrote going to and from work every day for four years. That's all I listened to in the car. And I learned so much from just listening to that music over and over again, because it's very harmonically rich and very decorative. It's got a lot of woodwind ornamentation and just, just it's, I mean, John Williams is just a master, right? So I just tried my best to do 1% of what he does. And that's why I feel like that game's a standout game for me personally, because I really felt like I did something different to what I'd done before. It's the first time I really mm, took on yeah. a really big orchestra. I really went for it. I feel like I did a decent job of it. And so that's why I feel that way about that game. It was, it was trying to push myself to be better than I was before. I think I've always done that in my career and I might not always get mm-hmm. there, but I'm always trying to be better. So that was a landmark for me. I kind of felt in my own head, at least. <laughs> yeah. yeah. A lot of uh, creative types have, um, they describe their level up moments where they discover they could do something that they didn't think they could do before. And so it's always kind of, uh, those are all oftentimes, you know, some of the real highlights in their background where they'll, they'll say like, I'm really proud of this, you know, even though, you know, maybe I've, I've done better since, but this was the, this was that milestone for me when I got to kind of the next level in a way. Yeah. It's like just thinking, I started to understand it better. And I started to think yeah. about, you know, it's cause I it was, you know, I was never great at harmony when I was at, when I was at university, uh, you had to pass the harmony exam once in the four years, you had to get it by the time you left the place. And I failed it three times mm-hmm. out of four. I was, I was terrible at harmony. I didn't understand it. I couldn't, I mean, you know, I never, ever dreamt about being a composer, never mm. into my head. You know, I would, I would never have thought to do it unless Robin Beanland hadn't suggested it to me. It's, the penny sort of dropped a bit more. I think the penny had dropped a bit before that. <laughs> it was like, I was like, oh yeah, I sort of get how he does some of that stuff, how, how some of it works. Um, and so that's when I just thought, if it, it, and normally I'm always trying to write things quickly and get them done fast. I thought if this takes me three or four days to do it, I should take the three or four days to do it. So that first boss piece, the Baylor piece, that's when I kind of, my first attempt at it, I thought, oh yeah, I do get it now. I just need to do it a bit slower and think about it more, you know, and get on with it. So yeah, definitely that, that game changed the way I thought about composing.
was uh, released in 2012. And in the uh, years following, you've um, continued to create music that is uh, both very kind of lush and very epic as well. And I think this this next soundtrack that we uh, will be uh, going into uh, for uh, Sid Meier's Civilization Beyond Earth and its uh, Rising Tide expansion really kind of speak to to that as well. Like there's there's a a strong uh, both a sci-fi feeling and kind of a just you know traditional classical aesthetic to it that that meld really well here. Yeah, I think that um, like I knew some guys at Fraxis because you know Big Huge Games was, was just down the street from there, uh, and uh, some of the guys had come to work on Amalor, then when then went back to Fraxis, they were doing the the civilization game and they asked me to write some music for it. Um, and the first the the, the the before the expansion, the just Beyond Earth, I'd, I'd got the uh, the arid uh, death death and uh, not death desert planet to do. You know that was such a fantastic thing to do because the only kind of guidance they gave was like we want you know epic hopeful music and mm-hmm. it was a bit like you know tell that to composers like woohoo you know, <laughs> you know here we go let's go for it and it's a big orchestra and it's gonna be live it's gonna be fantastic and I you know I think I started off sort of quite small minded about that I didn't know how big they expected it to go and by the end of it I was thinking oh god this is pretty fantastic so when we got to do the rising tide expansion I was like right. This is going to be, I'm really going for this. Because you kind of, you have to write a lot of maybe four or five pieces per planet. And it starts off like, you know, a little bit, a little bit um, scary. If it, you know, it's got more, more and more hopeful as each piece went by and as you, as you built the, the planet up to, you know, to the civilization, you know. So when we got to the last piece, Fractal Aquion, it was like, this, <laughs> this is it. I'm just going to blow the walls out, you know. So <laughs> I just, I really poured everything into that piece. I mean, all the pieces in, in the second, in the, in the expansion were like definitely bigger than the first, but. By the time I got to Fat and I was just, they kept just saying, yeah, but could it be a bit bigger than that? <laughs> Every time I wrote a piece, you mm. could probably go a bit bigger, you know? And I was thinking, Jesus Christ, is, is it just going to, you know, how far <laughs> can you go with it? So I thought, right, I'm just going to go for it. And at some point they're going to say, right, that's too big, but it never got to that point. <laughs> it was just like, keep going. So Fat was the absolute mm. pinnacle of my pushing the bow out, you know? And I absolutely love that piece of music. I mean, it, off my own, I can listen to that and, you know, still tear up when I listen to it. Yeah. I just absolutely just poured it all in there. That massive brass section, just everything was massive. It's got some synths in there as well. Bit of choir, you know, it's, you know, what more, what could you ask? So that was a, it was, a, that was a delight working for those games. I've still talked to those guys. They're good friends and I love working on that. It was phenomenal.
tracks like this and desktop dungeons and you know of the games that I wouldn't really necessarily associate you with uh, but it uh, it just speaks to just the the massive spectrum of work that you you have got you know, people say Grant Coco and they instantly do assume Banjo Kazooie and I think that's kind of a bit of you know it's a massive kind of dismissal of, of your, your greater work because there's so much going on here and even when you look back at the N64 you were doing more than just you know the, the traditional banjo kazooie sound you were doing perfect dark which is just tonally just massively different so then you listen to stuff like drop zone and you know civilization and desktop dungeons like there's more to like grant kirkhope than just banjo and like these tracks now just completely personify that and i kind of wish that more people would appreciate that that's kind of why we're doing this that's very kind of you. I mean, I, I do, I do feel like you know, as a composer, you know, to be known for anything, like just one thing, is amazing. So if I'm just known for Banjo Kazooie, mm. it's not like I'm unhappy with that. I am happy with that. Like I feel like mm. you know, for anything, anything to come out of my head that somebody else likes is just one of those amazing things that happens. So I don't, I, I don't mind that at all. It's you know, if people don't listen to the other stuff, that's cool. Um, but it's nice to hear to get to do the other stuff too. So, yeah, course, you know, and, yeah. I, and like I said, I, I, I think some people might mind the fact that maybe they think that the thing they think that is the best people out here. I don't really feel like that. I feel like I'm lucky that anybody likes a single note that I write, never mind two notes, you know. I, don't, I just don't mind it. I mean, obviously, you know, it's, it's nice to have, to be able to write that civilization stuff or, or Amalur or even Mario Rabbids for, that, for the, some of that stuff as well. It's like, mm-hmm. it's different. And Drop Zone and Perfect Dark too, they're, they're different. I think we all sort of call ourselves media composers these days. So that means we can do anything from mm, mobile right. phones to movies, right? And I feel like as that kind of compo- the modern composer, you have to be able to write in lots of different styles, otherwise you're not going to get any work. You have to be able to, you know, some guy says to you, I want you to write a massive epic sci-fi piece. Some guy says, I want you to write a Mario platform piece. You've got to be able to do the whole thing. Otherwise, you're, just, you're not very usable. If you've just got one, if you're only going to get one thing, you're only going to get one thing and that might only occur every five years, you know. Mm. I think most of the media guys that I know these days do get, can write in a lot of different styles. And I feel, especially the, the kind of older video games guys like I am, you had to do so many different ridiculous things in the, in the mm. older days, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, that you just got used to writing, especially like Viva Pinata, when the artist says to you, I've got a great idea in the romance dances, we're going to have a different style of music for every animal. And the six, <laughs> and the six of our yeah, animals, right. and you're like, you're like, oh, so that's 65 different kinds of music. Like, you know, from metal to college rock to orchestral mm. to ballroom dancing to reggae to hippie, you name it. I mean, uh, there's everything in those romance dances. I mean, they're only like mm-hmm. 20 seconds long, so it's, it was, that was such fun to do. So you just got to d- dip into that style of music for 20 seconds, because after that, I'd probably run out of ideas, you know. <laughs> but like, uh, you know, so it, that was, a, for me, that was like, Bloody hell, that was such a, it was a challenging and great fun to do because I could just write 65 kinds of music. It was just amazing. But it teaches you a lesson. You kind of, you, have, you learn to try and analyse music that perhaps you're not, not fond of and you, have, you don't know very well. So when they said to me, write a track a bit like Firestar, so I was like, oh God, I don't really like that kind of music, but I had to listen to it and work out what, what was going on and try and approximate <laughs> some kind of sound that was a bit like that, you know. You know, yeah, so I think that as media composers, you do have to get, to, you do have to write different styles. So the more strings to your bow, you're better. And also I feel like, some of the guys couldn't make the jump to the orchestra. Like, it, not, I mean, not all games require orchestra, mm-hmm. but some guys couldn't make the jump because they'd never done it before. And even though I hadn't done it before, I'd sat in it for so many years as a kid that like, I knew what it sounded like. So I wasn't, you know, I knew how, what brass was supposed to do, what woodwinds were supposed to do, what everything was supposed to do. So it made it, I didn't find that difficult. I, I thought it was great. So I think I was just lucky in that respect. Mm. But, you know, I don't, if people love me for one piece, that's fine by me. Like, I don't mind. If people only know me for the Smash Brothers piece, great. As long as they like me, I'm not bothered. I don't care. That is so special in itself. I'll never complain about that. It's, it's great. 
As far as rubbing elbows go, uh, there's not many people that can say that they've written for Mario, James Bond, and Mickey Mouse. That's doing pretty well, I think. <laughs> right, I'm doing some deep um, searching after this podcast, mate, because I cannot wait to see you doing a version of Firestarter. I probably heard it and forgot it, but yeah. Um, yeah, it was, what character, what creature was it? God, I can't remember. But Is there what, any creatures with like double mohawks? God, do you remember? They definitely did a, I, I did a, definitely did a Firestarter pastiche. Like we did like, you know, girls on film pastiche for the pigeons because they took pictures with a camera, right? Um, <laughs> so my hedgehog was a hippie. So we did like a Beatles, you know, um, strawberry fields <laughs> thing for them, you know. So it was all like that. I had, to, I had to get close enough that they couldn't sue us. That was the kind of thing. Yeah, there's, and somewhere on YouTube, there's a, there's, a, there's a compilation of all the romance dances from both games. Those are really fun. I, I really love it. It's this kind of whole carnival of the animals type thing with a, a ton of variety. And uh, and then the dances themselves as well, like the visual component, not just the music, I think, uh, are uh, are just really <laughs> a lot of fun, a lot of fun to watch through. Yeah, we had to find a way to make that, get animals to mate that was that kitty friendly that was pg yeah <laughs> yeah so they came up with the idea of that, do a romance dance and then that would be how they got together you know so i thought that was such a cool it's idea not too far from the truth either yeah absolutely yeah <laughs> when you have the local disco you're drunk exactly it's like that uh <laughs> yeah come on love you know um so uh no that was a great fun to do and like as i say that it was to, to try and work on all that all the different kinds of music was fantastic fun some were orchestral some were like some were rock some were all over, all over the place it was great fun well, so you've spoken about um some of the uh, the difference in the way that video game music is perceived um, as opposed to film music. Do you feel like like film music gets more respect and legitimacy, generally speaking, than game scores do? Because there's really like, as far as volume goes, like game scores almost, you know, sometimes like quadruple uh, the amount of music that's written for films. And so, you know, where do you see this divide coming from? I feel like it's getting less and less and every day goes by. I think at the start it was quite big. Mm-hmm. But I feel like now it's not so much um, because, you know, we're still out there using orchestras like everybody else is. And the music isn't, right. any, isn't any okay. less epic or, or, or interesting. Plus games have got that whole chip tune electronic side to it as well, which is like a, a huge swathe of fantastic material. So I feel like mm-hmm. that's getting less and less. And I do feel like you're getting more crossover now. It just happened more. Yeah. I think we're still not, we're still not quite a parity by any means. Cause like you've got Oscars and things like that, that take that very seriously. We haven't got that in games. Like BAFTA's probably the biggest body that recognizes games, game scoring. Mm-hmm. You haven't got that in America yet of any degree. I mean, ASCAP do their own awards that include video games, but BMI don't. So I think that we're still getting there, you know, but I think the whole, the whole live concert thing, like, when you when you get like a video games concert when it gets performed by orchestras, they get sold out in ten seconds flat. People cannot wait mm-hmm. to get in there. I do feel like that's really changed a lot. Like you know, if mm-hmm. you think that your kid says to you, "I want to go to the symphony, Dad," you're going to go, "Pardon, did I just hear? Did I just hear you want to go and see a symphony orchestra?" Yeah, I'm, a, I'm, a, you know, I'm, a, I'm imagining that. Uh, you know, it's like that really happens now, mm-hmm. and these concerts sell out all over the place. And I think the, the big orchestras of the world are going, if we do four or five video game concerts a year, that can finance us doing the other stuff that maybe isn't as, po- <laughs> that isn't as popular, you know, that still, need, still needs to be heard, but isn't as popular. It's, it's just, that's amazing to me, that is. Who'd have thought we'd ever get to that? Like, I, we can't be that far away from video games proms at the, at the proms in the summer in the UK. We can't be that far mm. away from it. They haven't done it yet, but I'd, I'd be surprised if they didn't introduce a video games night. You know, when Classic M, Classic M started playing video games tunes, the, list, the listenership soared, like it went through the roof yeah. on, those, on those nights to play when they did a video games, you know, centric show. Like his kid, people would be tuning in because they love it, you know. Like yeah, Jessica Curry, who was doing that high score on Classic right. FM, now it's, now it's um, Ema Nunu does it now. She's just switched to her because Jessica's gone across to Radio 3. I mean, you know, so BBC Radio 3 are now taking video games seriously. 
And these are the, they're the bastions of diehard classical music, you know. So the fact that when Classic FM do the, do the, the Hall of Fame every year, like I get voted in there. It's ridiculous. Like me and Nobu Imatsu and, you know, and, you know, and the guys mm-hmm. from Warcraft and you know, Austin mm-hmm. Wintry and, you know, we, we, we get voted in there now. I and mean, I'm sure the classical guys hate it, but we do get voted in, you know. Um, <laughs> and, it, and, it's, and it's probably opened up some of their ears to like things like Viva Pinata, but they can go, all right, it's a video game score, but it sounds classical to me. And I think it, it is definitely changing and rightly so. I think there's such a, there's a gigantic swathe of fantastic music in video games. And I think it's it's definitely, it's that climate is changing, I think. Mm. So referencing my earlier question about internal rivalry between people, are you jonesing for an Ivor Novello award now that Robin's got one? That was fantastic. Robin, me a best mate. Yeah. So you know, he's best mate, he's best man at my wedding, you know. We're best friends for years. And he won that. I just, I was nearly crying. It was absolutely fantastic. I, mean, I feel that's a special award. Yeah, I, I don't know how significant it is because I'm quite naive to the musical awards of any type, really. But to see him holding a trophy just like look how good i am like i oh, just so, just so happy for him because his music you know from start to now it's just so it's just so good yeah you know oh, I mean? definitely and i think i feel robin you know he i guess he felt during the kind of connect sports era that he wasn't getting a fair look in really and i kind of felt mm. like he you know from the lap mm. from conquer right up until seals thieves is you know he's not had a lot of recognition which is unfair and the fact that Sea of Thieves is so brilliant he's a, he's a real chance to write real music again not just some crappy sports stuff like for connect sports and he, do, mm-hmm. he goes and does it. He went to Navalavello straight away, which is amazing. I mean, that's such a prestige, a prestige award. There's only a few awards yeah. for that, you know. I know it's only British, mm-hmm. but, you know, it just is the cream of the cream. Mm-hmm. That, I've just, you know, he, he so deserves that because I think he's been a little bit overlooked. And so I think that now he's like back on the map, which is great because where he deserves to be. That was fantastic. Yeah, I was just listening to uh, Jet Force Gemini tracks uh, yesterday. That's a great score. That is great score. Oh, it's just, for an N64. Like, how did the, how did he work that into the N64, mm. man? Like, <laughs> I know this isn't the Robin Beanland podcast, but why not? Eh? He's just an absolute audio treat. Oh Again, no, it's, it's, no it's, yeah, for definite. And like, if he, if he hadn't said to me, you know, Grant, you've been on the dole eleven years. Why don't you try writing music for games like I am? I've never done it. Mm. it you know, that, that he is the reason I'm doing what I do. If it wasn't for him, I wouldn't be doing it. So eternally grateful to that man. I know he's, I know he's ginger, but you know, well, we can let things slide. <laughs> <laughs> well, Robin's a real uh, musical chameleon. Like he makes switching wildly different genres seem so effortless. Like I don't even know. I can't even imagine. <laughs> Yeah, it's because mm-hmm. you have to. Like, I think, you know, Rare was that company that you, you got, but, you know, you, I'd do Banjo one day and Perfect Dark the next. That's the mm-hmm. way it was. Mm-hmm. You had to be able to write all the stuff. So he's just the same. He was doing Killer Instinct to Conquer to Jeff Force Gemini to Theater Thieves to Connect Sports. You have to be a chameleon. That's, that's the way you keep your job. You have yeah. to be able to do lots of things well. Yeah, well, um, let's uh, let's go into another piece of music here. Uh, this is our uh, next track comes from a more recent game, Drop Zone. Uh, and so I'm curious about this as well, because again, this is another uh, another piece with some real kick to it, which I appreciate. <laughs> it's got a, a real power behind it. So when it comes to composing for games, how hands-on do you like to be with the game during development? Do you insist on you know, playing something, even if it's just a gray box demo, or are you happy to work off of uh, brief and concept art and video capture, you know, the secondary aspects yeah any of those things like whatever they've got is great um so you know i, I really feel like any composer worth the salt should get a pretty good idea for this start just from a few words from the from the from the creative director mm-hmm. you know i said it before but in the city it's a spiky ice castle you're going to think you know spiky instruments if, you, if it's a warm forest i'm going to think woodwinds and strings you know you know it's just the way it goes i think you've got a palette in your head before you even touch it you know um, I think with Drop Zone, it was a violent game. Not violent, but it was a full-on game. Um, mm-hmm. And it was like some of the guys that we used to get big, huge games, so I knew them well. 
Um, and, you know, I'd done a sort of synthy score for a while, so it was cool to get back into synths and mess around with that stuff. And I just tried to make it as violent as I could. <laughs> That's what I was trying to do. Try and find the most violent sound, stick them all together with a bit of orchestra. <laughs> you know, so that was, it was super cool to do it. I had a, had a lot of fun doing it and they and the game was great. It's just a shame that the company that owned them went bust or cancelled the mm. development. Uh, the, when the game came out, it was getting great reviews. It was doing, it did great at the shows. Uh, and then it just, it just kind of fell by the by. Um, it's a bit of a shame. But um, no, you know, I just think you just, you just shut your eyes and go, what's, what does a battle in space sound like? What's this going to, this kind of thing, that kind of, that kind of game was, it was kind of a hybrid of like a strategy and a MOBA stuck together. Yeah. You know, I saw, saw lots of stuff, talked to, I, I had plenty of uh, stuff to look at. But you just, you know, you, you write your first piece and say, yeah, that's just about right, but could it be a, bit, be a bit more like this? And you soon get into the groove of it, you know. And I really like, as I say, messing around with synths is good fun. I just feel like it just takes, you know, like each kind of music has its own bit, the, the, its own con to it. So like writing orchestral music is great because you've got a finite palette. You've only got strings and brass and woodwind and percussion. You, you've got to make it sound human. So you, you play it into the computer. You've got to make it play out of time so it sounds human. You know, you can't, if it plays yeah. exactly in time, it just doesn't sound real. So that's a, that's a pain in the bum to do that. And then when you do synthy <laughs> stuff, you can make it you can make it in perfect time, so you don't worry about that. But when you go looking for a bass sound, you've got like eight million bass sounds to go through before you find the one that you like. You know, so you mm. spend all your time going not bass sound one, no bass sound two, no bass sound three. You get to bass sound fifteen, go I can't remember what bass bass sound one sounded like. You know, and it gets a bit like that. There's all oh, there's drawbacks to all of it. No, it's great to have a right. You know, I, I tried to make it like you say, very powerful music. That's my I was trying to make it powerful, mm. impactful. And full on, you know, so um, high pressure. So, yeah, that was good to do. Sure. One of the things, obviously, about video game music is that it's uh, underlying not only a medium that you're observing passively, but something that you're actively engaged with. And so, you know, there is a kinetic aspect to playing the games. And so how much does the pace of gameplay impact the piece that you're writing? And I imagine, you know, Banjo kind of uh, kind of gingerly ambles around his stages as opposed to like a Sonic the Hedgehog or even uh, uh, to bring it into another game that you uh, that you composed a piece for, Hat in Time, is, is a lot more kind of acrobatic. When you're thinking about writing for a game, how much do you consider the how the character moves and the pace of the gameplay and that, that kind of thing? Because I'd imagine for strategy and especially something turn-based like, uh, like Beyond Earth, like we talked about earlier, like that would be really difficult to balance in. Yeah, I think that that is... That is super important. I see, yeah, you have to write the right tune for the right game, right? So if you're writing mm-hmm. for some kind of Zelda RPG, it's probably going to be more ambient or a little bit less intrusive or a little bit lighter. And you'll pick your moments and you'll be, you'll introduce some kind of combat music when it possibly like Amanor did that, when it had like, I did yeah. the same thing I did in Grab by the Ghoulies. I'd wrote a, like a sort of several pieces of music for, or maybe, or maybe 10 or 12 per level that would come and go and you get, you know, patches of silence. But whenever anything kicked off, you'd get some kind of combat music. So, you know, you'd, that'd be like that kind of RPG game. A platform is probably going to be a bit jollier, like ukulele or like, you know, that kind of game or banjo. It's jollying along as you do your stuff. So I think you've, you've really got to take that, that influences everything, right? That's, that's what you write the music about. That's the main, mm-hmm. the main indicator. So yeah, definitely. Well, fantastic. Let's listen to Core Hunting by Grant Kirkhope from Drop Zone.
have one more piece of music to listen to, but before we get to that, uh, we wanted to remind everyone to head over to our forum at canonrinse.com slash forum or get in touch with us on Twitter where you can request your favorite pieces of video game music. We will play them in uh, in the regular shows. Please do uh, check out not only this podcast, The Sound of Play, if you haven't already. We don't always have a composer in the hot seat, but uh, we always do play a wide variety of video game music from throughout decades and decades of of um, wonderful experimentation and, and weird stuff throughout the medium. We also have a, a couple of other podcasts. The Sausage Factory is interviews with with developers hosted by Chris O'Regan and uh, myself and Ryan Quintel host Playwright, where we make uh, brand new video game ideas and workshop them every week. Uh, that one gets weird. <laughs> uh, I wanted to, again, thank Grant Kirko for taking some time to to chat with us. It's It's been really fascinating hearing some of the behind the scenes and uh, to kind of pick the mind of somebody who's created such a, a wide breadth of, um, of, of very memorable work over the years. No, thanks for asking me. I like it. You know, it's always uh, nice to get the old bloke out now and then for a quick bit of a chat, you know. <laughs> <laughs> no, honestly, I really appreciate it. I mean, I really try hard. I, I don't like that ego thing, right? And a lot of composers that I sometimes mm-hmm. meet are a bit that way. And I always kind of think that there's no need to be like that. Like, just be that bloke that writes a couple of tunes that people might like here and there. Mm. That's the way I like to think about it. Like, I, you know, it's nice I've got Twitter followers, but I kind of feel like we're all just like video game. I'm just music fans and we like to talk about stuff and have a laugh. And I don't mind people calling me a wacky now and then. I don't really care, you know. It's, <laughs> I think we have good fun with that. And I really feel like that's the way I like it to be. I don't like that kind of I'm special thing. I don't think I'm special. I think everybody's special for their own reasons. That's great. And then, of course, also thank you, Darren, for... Uh for joining in as well. I know that you were very excited about this one. Oh, st- stunned silence for most of this, to be honest. Uh, yeah, honestly, I'm, I'm like I say, I'm catching you all one by one Pokemon style, you know, yeah. as a ex-employee for a brief period and a super fan for a long time, you know, to do these things that I'm doing. I was recently involved with the um, GoldenEye documentary that's being filmed. Right. I was filmed for that. And, I, and I, said, I said on the documentary, I want to work with Grant Kirk at some point and lo and behold, like we're on a podcast, you know, weeks later. Right. Like, I, I'm ticking some live goals and uh, yeah, you've, you've ticked off a box for me. It's it's great to chat. That really is. And like, sometimes, you, you know, you just get asked questions that you don't get asked before. So it's, it's nice to kind of, you know, babble mm. along and see how it goes. You know, so I, quite, I like that. It's great. Let's, uh, let's take just a moment to look into the future a little bit. Um, the last piece that we're featuring today is uh, the piece that was debuted recently for Super Smash Bros. Ultimate. Um, but I'm kind of curious, you know, as you're looking forward into future projects, there's, you know, probably not a lot that you can talk about in any uh, level of specificity right now, just because that's the way that the video game industry works. But is there any kind of like style or genre of music or compositional technique that you'd be interested in uh, experimenting with for future soundtracks. I would like another go at a big RPG like Amalur because mm. that's you can you can write great big massive music for that. So I'd like another crack at one of those. I guess recently I did that little game for it's it's called Interstellar Space Genesis for Praxis Games. And there's mm-hmm. a little develop, development studio in Portugal, but I think they made a great little indie game there, and that was cool to do that. Of course, I've just done the new ukulele, Impossible Lair, did a bit for that with Dave Wise mm-hmm. as well, and, and the, the, the the two guys Dan and Matt that work there. That's all, that's all I can talk about really at the moment, I'm afraid. But um. But like, uh, no, I'd like a crack at a big RPG. That'd be good fun to do another one of those. But, you know, honestly, I don't mind really. I, I just like writing music. It's good fun. <laughs> and like, you know, working with the, the people that I've, I haven't worked with anybody over the years, over the years that I've, that I've, I've had a remote disagreement with, you know. So it's, well, one person I can think of, but that one game I can think of that <laughs> I kind of didn't get along with them, but that's the only one in like, in like 24 years, whatever it is. So 
you know, to get asked to write music for anything is just a, a massive honor. And it's usually fantastic fun. And like, how can you not enjoy it? I don't care what it is. I don't care if it's a mm-hmm. card simulation. Let's just do, I'm, I'm up for it. You know, I don't care. Um, I think it's all good fun. And also the more, the more variety you get to do is great. So like, cause I've done a big variety, like I can do, you know, most things, you know, in the genre, you know, reasonably well, but it's nice to get a bit of variety. It's nice to get asked to do wacky stuff now and then. And that's why I do it. So, um, yeah, no, I'm, I'm up for anything. You name it, I'll do it. <laughs> Are there any things that you would like to plug? Any new projects that you'd like to get some extra eyes on or any uh, of your own kind of independent work that you're eager to show off? Well, I'd say, you know, I'd say take a look at Interstellar Space Genesis by Praxis Games. It's a it's mm-hmm. a kind of a civilization, civilization-y sort of game, space adventure thing. Uh, it's on stream. Uh, I think that's a cool game. And those, those two, I think two guys have done it and they worked super hard on it. Um, and um, I did like three tunes for them. But, you know, in fact, in fact, the soundtrack was just won an award at the World Soundtrack Awards like a couple of weeks ago. Uh, so we got like a silver award. I think, um, what won it? It was, uh, oh, I forget. We got the silver award for that. But that was fantastic for a little game like that, you know. So mm-hmm. yeah, take a look at that. I think it's fun. Well, fantastic. Well, this this final piece of music, Spiral Mountain, from Super Smash Brothers Ultimate, which uh, comes out with the Banjo DLC uh, this autumn. Very fun piece of music. It, it's very recognizable for people who have, uh, who have grown up with the Banjo series. But my favorite bit, of course, is uh, all the little references to the other levels that made their way mm-hmm. in there. Yeah, right. So when I came to do it, like the sent, mm-hmm. Nintendo send you out like a, a PowerPoint document to do it to, to all the smash composers. And mm-hmm. it's kind of, it's kind of a broad sort of thing, like what they want to hear. So it sort of says like four seconds intro straight into the main theme, really go for it. And then like towards the end, drop, drop it down a little bit before we, before we loop it around again. And that's how they said to me. So I thought, great. So I thought, well, you know, how could I was trying to think of what piece I could do. And I thought maybe should I do Sparrow Mountain, not Sparrow Mountain, should I do a Man Master Mansion or Free CG mm-hmm. Peaks? Or maybe Treasure Trove Cove. And I thought, ah, I think Spyro Mountain's the one to do because it's right at the start of the game. And it's probably very memorable, you know. So I thought I'd have a go at that. And I, once I got an idea in my head, I, I'm all right with it. So I kind of thought, in my head, I was trying to do like an Indiana Jones representation of it. It may not sound like a lot to you, but that's what I was thinking in my head at the time. Hmm. So um, I did the, uh, and the orchestra bit you hear at the end was at the start of the thing. So I sent it off okay. to Mr. Mr. Sakurai and it came back. Yeah, we like it. Great, great. You know, get on with it. And, and the first one they said to, said to me, you can pick any, you can do a medley of tunes, do whatever you want anything you like so after i did that first little section i sent i, I start i thought i better put the banjo in so i put the, that little banjo section in that, that kind of dry thing mm-hmm. sent it off and so oh, we like this bit but we think now that you should really put this at the start so start small which is kind of contrary to what they said in the document mm. at the end of it really go for it with the orchestra which is also contrary to what they said because they said we don't, don't go too epic because it gets in the way of the sound effects so mm-hmm. it was like all right so i put the banjo bit at the start and then to kept saying make it drier 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 no reverbs so when the Orchestra comes in halfway through. It's a big, a big moment, you know. Yeah, and that's and that's how it turned out, and that's how I did it. And you know, and they were, you know, they were super nice to me. You know, they they, they, they were they, they were they, they just kind of gave me a little bit of guidance here and there. But they, they, it was great to do it. And they said, well, now also we think you should keep it Sparrow Mountain. Don't do anything else because we like it's it's different to the what, what everything else that's in Smash. But you can mm-hmm. maybe allude to other level pieces in in little sneaky bits in the, in the piece somewhere. So mm-hmm. I was trying to think how I could fit little bits in with the harmony, et cetera, you know. So I kind of managed to squeeze in four or five, I think, um, little references to other tunes. And it was kind of for the fans to spot and go, is that, is that that, is that that, you know. So, yeah. And they really liked it too. So I thought that was a that was fun to try to get them in there, you know, and keep it in, in, the, in the right harmony, et cetera, you know. So that was good. Yeah, and it's great to hear all the Rusty Bucket Bay and the Mayhem Temple and all these yeah. like, fun little. And I think that's one of the real strengths of uh, of your compositional style is that it seems like 
it doesn't take that many notes to be like a recognizable idea and to be because every track has such like a strong musical idea at its core that you know it can be evoked with uh you know within a couple seconds yeah i, f- I feel like that's that that's that john williams thing that i was trying to get as a, when I, in my younger days you know yeah yeah I feel it's like it's called leitmotif it was invented right. by richard wagner the opera guy in germany years and years ago uh and you know well in the 1800s probably but i mean you know like he was known for that thing so when he wrote his big operas each character would get a big theme but he would make it so the first four or five notes would be the leitmotif that he would play when they came on stage. Mm-hmm. So, you'd, so that, you wouldn't hear the whole theme, but you'd hear the little bit that they, you was them. So like, you know, when it's when it's like John Williams, it's like, da, 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 da. That's it, mm-hmm. you know who you are, right? Or it's Harry Potter, da, 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 da. That's all you need to hear at no more. And so I mm-hmm. was always thinking to myself, I need to be able to make use it as leitmotif just in case I need to use it later. <laughs> so if you could, <laughs> if you could get, get the point across in, in, in the first three or four notes, that's a bonus, mm. right? So I've always thought like that. So luckily those, those tunes from Banjo, I've got a little bit of recognizability about it when the start. So you can put a few notes in and people get it, you know? So, yeah. So when it came to actually making Spiral Mountain again for Super Smash Bros. Ultimate, did you have to re- recreate the, the track from scratch or were you given like old masters from back in the day to work with? Like it must've been an odd feeling to- Yeah, but I've got all those anyway, but no, I just started from yeah. scratch. Like I've got all my rare stuff. I shouldn't have it, I suppose, yeah. but I've got it all. But like, yeah, so um, yeah, I just, um, I actually got a bit of the harmony wrong, actually. Listening back to it, I realised I've been a bit mistaken one of the chords because <laughs> I just did it up from my head. Um, but yeah, I just recreated it. I mean, I've not, I know it so well, you know. I had a feeling you had all your kind of old works stored in some hard drive somewhere because at one point you had something called and the kitchen sink on your website, right? That, and, it, yeah. and it mysteriously disappeared from existence. I'm guessing because Rare Replay was in the wings, right? And they asked you to take it down. Yeah, a little bit. It wasn't quite that, but it was something like that. Yeah. And I actually have got yeah. Banjo Tui and DK64 in the same format, everything in the kitchen sink, but I can't put them out, mm. of course. They're all there. Mm. You've got my email. You know what to do. Come on. <laughs> and if you can give me the whole GoldenEye soundtrack uncompressed, <laughs> that'll be even better. Yeah, yeah there's beautiful remastered versions that came out a few years oh, back God. as well i think mm-hmm. people get a bit confused about the uncompressed thing right it is it like the golden eye soundtrack only, only did six tracks like that because i was waiting for an n64 death kit to turn up mm, so yeah. i wrote the uh-huh. one like on the full blonde synths and did it like full blown and then i had to i just squash them i had to you know resample it all to get it into the n64 yeah makes sense so like all the other soundtracks don't exist in an uncompressed format. They exist as they are. So like- They were just kind of written to spec at that point. Yeah. There isn't a Banjo-Kazooie soundtrack because what, the way you did it was you'd you'd put all the little instruments into the N64 itself and we'd play the instruments via a, a hookup from our PCs that went straight into the N64 dev kit. So that, that's why maybe Rare's music sounded a bit better in those days because we actually played the things in the machine as opposed to mm-hmm. making it sound great and then try to make it fit in the machine. We played the actual thing to see, you, you, you know, you used instruments that were, that sounded good for that certain point in the tune. So you actually used the actual things that you were going to be, that would be actually in the game. So it made you, you know, think more about what you did rather than just pie in the sky, let's make it sound amazing and then try and squeeze it in there. That's, I think, why Rare stuff sounded different in those days, because we played the actual things in the console. Yeah, again, uh, going back to those uh, leitmotifs in Spiral Mountain, uh, listeners, uh, challenge yourselves to see how many of them you can pick out. Uh, they are kind of towards the end of the track there, but I think that anyone who's familiar with that soundtrack will um, will have a fun time kind of identifying within their own minds um, the pieces as they come by. It reminds me a lot of the of the Banjo Land tracks composed for Banjo Kazooie Nuts and Bolts on the uh, Xbox 360, uh, which I, I love that as well. I love uh, my, I think my favorite, <laughs> my favorite bit in any Grant Kirkhope piece is in uh, Banjo Land when it kicks into Mad Monster Mansion and you just get like that first note of just like the most like kick-ass like organ 
right. uh, organ chord that just like comes out of nowhere and just like hits like a ton of bricks. And I just, oh, that transition is fantastic. Yeah, I think at that point in that, in that, in that piece of music, that, that game, I thought this is the time to try and squeeze as many Banjo-Kazooie yep, tracks all yep. together. And I just <laughs> did my best because the, the level was all based on old games, right? On, on the old yeah. games. So I just thought that's got to get them all in there as <laughs> many as I can. <laughs> well, very cool. This was... Uh, yeah, a lot of fun to to speak to you and let's uh let's play it out with a future track. This is Spiral Mountain from Super Smash Bros Ultimate DLC coming later this autumn. And we'll see you next week. <laughs> <laughs>